now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. I'm your producer and host, Lauren Mangum. This week we'll be taking over your airwaves to celebrate National Forensic Science Week with multiple Just So You Know episodes. Today we have Heidi Eldridge on to discuss her forensic science background and all the resources she brings to the FTCOE. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you, Lauren. So, Heidi, one of the things that I would like to discuss with you is uh, your background. It's a little bit interesting compared to most of the people on the team. What was your undergrad in? So, it's a little unusual for really any forensic scientist. My bachelor's degree is in speech and theater. Oh, wow. Yes. So, I was a theater geek all through college. (laughs) So, that was your full bachelor's? You weren't like a dual? No, I had just the bachelor's degree. I had a minor in biology and another minor in French. Um, At one point, I had five minors. I decided not to finish them all, but I have problems committing to one interest. So after you finished your undergrad, what next? So after that, I went and actually worked as an elementary school teacher for a couple of years. And then I wanted to go back and get a master's degree or a PhD, largely because I realized that I was not going to be supporting myself as an actress. Uh, So I needed to find a real job. Uh, And so I went back and started applying to universities in PhD programs in biology, because that's where my interests lie. And at the time, I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. So I was really looking at coastal schools. And trying to find one that wanted to take a theater major on was a little bit of a challenge because I did have that biology minor, but I didn't really have the hard science pedigree, as it were. So uh, I applied around a few places, and I ended up going to Duke University, was accepted into their PhD program. And then things got a little weird because Duke does not accept master's students. They only accept PhD students. So I was there as a PhD student. When they accepted me, they said, hey, you don't have to know what project you want to do. Just come take classes for a while, see where your interests lie, and figure it out from there. So I did that, spent a couple years taking classes, decided what I wanted to do, and what I was really into was sociobiology, which is basically how biology pushes us as people to behave in certain ways, right? Our underlying genetics and and why that makes us need to do certain things to uh, increase our gene strength. And so I was really into that, and I wanted to do this project in sociobiology that had to do with bats and altruistic behavior and their genetic relatedness, and I was really excited about that. And I went to my advisor and said, this is what I want to do, and he basically said, wow, that's a really cool project. We don't have anyone here who does that. So at that point, I was faced with going to another school and starting over or choosing a completely different project, and I sort of said, you know what? I don't actually need a PhD right now, so what else can I do? And they said, well, you could just complete a project and take a master's. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I did a one-year project on, interestingly enough, it was affiliative behaviors in male baboons, which basically meant how male baboons sit around and groom each other or pull each other's genitalia or do all these different behaviors that, again, strengthen their relationships for genetic gain. That's a whole nother story. (laughs) So I did that, completed the master's, and then said, 
what can I do with a master's in biology? Because this is not the path I had originally started on. And while I was looking around for jobs that you could do with a master's in biology, I remembered that way back in eighth grade, I had taken a summer camp in forensic science. We're taking it way back We are, now. yeah, back when, and back then I used to tell people like, I wanna be a forensic scientist. And they'd say, that's cute little girl, what's forensic science? So cause right, this was, because you know back in the day, CSI. Right, right. I just sort of remembered that and said, yeah, that was really cool. And hey, I happen to be qualified. And so I started applying for jobs in forensic science, which at the time was tougher than one might expect. I actually spent a year applying for jobs, a little over a oh, year. Wow. Because at the time, and it may still be this way, it was a sort of catch-22, right, where nobody wanted to hire you if you didn't have experience, but where are you going to get experience if you haven't been hired? So what actually got you the job? It was mostly kismet. Uh, it was partially the economy. It was partially just some unfortunate things that happened for other agencies at the time that I was looking for a job. Okay. Uh, basically, I, I started with the Oregon State Police. I was always extremely grateful that they gave me my break. Okay. Um, and I was looking all over the country. I just wanted a job, didn't care where I started. And I thought, well, if I end up in some pit, I'll leave after a year, but I'll have a year's experience. And yeah. so I was actually really happy that Oregon was the one who took me because what a great place to live. And so what happened was Oregon State Police in 2004 ended up taking on a essentially a class of freshmen. There were five of us who came in together at my lab. Four of us were fresh out of school. One of us came on at the same time but had some experience. And then a couple of the other labs around the state, they took on a couple people at the same time. And that was not necessarily their usual way of operating. Were you just a blanket bench scientist or did you come in with a specific discipline in mind? So the way OSP did it at the time at least was they considered controlled substances to be their training ground. Oh, okay. So if you came in with, you know, experience or background in a particular discipline and they had a hole there, they might stick you somewhere else, but the majority of us were put right into controlled substances. Part of the reason they choose it, I think, is because it's fairly quick to learn. So okay. I spent about five months in training. So they're teaching you, you know, their policies and procedures. They're teaching you the chemistry that you need to know to do extractions and, you know, make choices about presumptive tests and confirmatory tests and that sort of thing. And again, I'm a biologist. I'm really not a chemist. I had the requisite chemistry classes, but I would not consider myself a chemist by any stretch of the imagination. So it was definitely a learning period for me to get the knowledge I needed. But yeah, it only took about five months to get through all that. And then you were doing casework and okay. you were getting a large volume of cases out the door, which was something they needed. You were able to testify pretty quickly and start getting that courtroom experience. So it was a nice way for them to sort of put people through their paces and see like, can you do this forensic science thing? Okay. And then they'll decide whether they want to keep you in controlled substances or whether they want to branch you out into other disciplines. Okay. And so, so what happened with you? Did they end up choosing a different discipline for you? Or? Uh, they did. So I was in controlled substances for about a year before they had an opening in Leighton Prince. Okay. And they said, now you know, we're getting into your... Yeah. They said, we, we'd like you to cross train in Leighton Prince. And I said, oh God, that sounds awful. Little do we all know <laughs> I don't now, want to look at know? blurry squiggles all day long. <laughs> Who would want to do that? But I was also very much cognizant of the curse of controlled substances. I didn't want to get stuck in controlled substances my whole life. You know, I wanted to be able to do other disciplines. So I said, yeah, latents, that sounds interesting. So I started training in latents and I actually liked it. Okay. So that worked out well. And for a time, uh, I was the only scientist at OSP that was what they called a hybrid forensic scientist. And they expanded this program after me where anytime evidence came in, 
that needed both latents and controlled substances. So you had a, a plastic baggie with some drugs in it, and they wanted you to identify the drugs and see if anyone's fingerprints were on the baggie. Well, previously, they'd had to separate it into two different pieces of evidence. There was extra handling. There was extra delay in the case. And since I was trained in both disciplines, they would just give the whole case to me. Oh, And they'd say, okay. here, Heidi, find out what drugs these are and if there are any latents on the bag. So you helped them be more efficient. Correct. Is, yeah, and they decided that they liked that, so then they started cross-training a few other people to be able to do both controlled substances and latents. Did you decide to stay in latents, or is that just how it panned out for you? No, that was pretty much my decision. I okay. Was, I was happy there. I did want to get involved in crime scenes, okay. which was part of why I eventually left OSP, is because I didn't feel like I was progressing up the list to get on the crime scene team, and I really wanted to do crime scenes. And an opening came up in another agency in the same city. It was the city police department, Eugene Police Department, and they needed somebody with latent print experience and who they could train in crime scenes. And I said, that sounds like me. So I went and yeah. did that. Okay. Um, and then I stayed there for um, about six years. Okay. So let's take it back just a hair. Sure. So let's talk about your first time ever being on the stand. Okay. So how did that go for you? Was it a positive experience or was it nerve wracking in and of itself? The first one that I had was telephonic, which was just weird to begin with. So I couldn't see the person questioning me. I'm doing it over the phone because it was out of town because we again I was with Oregon State Police so we served the whole state so sometimes if it was very far away instead of making you drive across the state they would just let you call in your testimony and I was so nervous uh, that they asked me this really simple question they wanted to know how many grams were in an ounce and I completely blanked oh really yeah and I was just and I was being observed as well because we didn't testify oh, no. that often. And so okay. they had to, you know, have someone observe your testimony every so often to make sure you were doing a good job. And so they asked me this question and I was just deer in the headlights. And I said, right. you know, um, well, I, I know that number and I don't recall it right now, but I'm sure I could get it in my notes. Right. Yeah. Awful. Smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I got better after that. Right. Yeah. Well, you can only go up right. from not knowing the answers. Right. Yeah. So how would you prepare for that, uh, being a young forensic scientist, first time on the stand? Um, I mean, I have always felt, and this is super out of left field, but I've always felt that that was the strength of my theater degree. Okay. Yeah. Um, not that it taught us how to testify, but it taught us how to speak and how to be articulate and how to deal with stage fright and how to think on your feet when something goes wrong. Um, you know, Improv. all of those sort of, exactly, yeah, all of those sort of skills, because, you know, live theater, anything can happen. Um, and so I've actually, for years, been suggesting that on tours of labs and things when, you know, I get these bright eyed bushy tail little high schoolers saying, like, what should I take to be a forensic scientist? And I say, theater. They say, what? <laughs> Come again? Right. Yeah. I'm like, seriously, you need to be comfortable standing up in front of a bunch of people and talking about something, you know, and not getting all tongue tied and not worried about them judging you and all of that sort of thing. So um, although I did get tongue tied, that whole telephonic thing really threw me off. Um, <laughs> I think that it's helped me a lot with testimony, with speaking at conferences, all of those sorts of things, just being able to do public speaking in general. Okay. Yeah. 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 So and that's why you're back story is a little is a little different than what we have here yes. from most people yes. so at this point you are going to start training in crime scene but you have already been trained in controlled substances and latent prints what made you want to go from latent prints to move into crime scene I'll go ahead and speak for you know the youth of America <laughs> I think that all of us who are young and interested in forensic science 
all want to be crime scene investigators. It seems to be just the common thread. Like, that's where the excitement is. You know, you want to go out to the scene. You want to see the dead body. You want to find the cool clue, you know. Right, That's where all the sexy stuff happens. Right, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I had that same bug everybody has. Like, I wanted to be where the action was. Um, And it seems to be sort of the trend in our field that when you're young, you're upset if you can't get on the crime scene team. Okay. And as you get older, you're upset if you can't get off the crime scene team. <laughs> and it, <laughs> Funny it how that out. plays out. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's exactly how it worked for me. So I, I left OSP in part because I wanted to get on the crime scene team at EPD. And I left EPD in part because I couldn't get off the crime scene team six years later. <laughs> okay. I really was done with it. And they were small enough that they couldn't not have me on the team. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do after that? So then I went to Las Vegas Metro PD. Okay. Um, and that was an opportunity to, well, to work with Alice Maceo, who's now Alice Maceo White. I really wanted the opportunity to work with her, learn a lot more about latent fingerprints. I wanted the opportunity to testify more often because I really liked testimony. That was really my bag. And Eugene was a small town, so I didn't get to do it very much. Um, and I would be latent full time, so I wouldn't be on the crime scene team anymore. Okay, so at this point, you were okay with being pigeonholed into latent prints. I was. was, Okay. Yeah, I I had really gotten my teeth into latent prints. I was on SwigFast at the Times, uh, which is a a standard-setting organization at the time for latent prints. And so I was really enjoying sort of stretching my legs in that field. Um, And I had had my daughter, which had a lot to do with wanting off the crime scene team. It was no longer fun to get woken up at 3 in the morning to go to work when you had an infant at home. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So work-life balance at this point was becoming a thing. Yes. So Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Okay, so now you're doing latent prints at this point full-time. Yes. You're, You're testifying. So while you're at Las Vegas, you begin a PhD program. Now, this PhD program is a very established (laughs) PhD program, and I'm going to let you explain to uh, listeners what that means exactly. Sure. So I'm doing my PhD at the University of Lausanne in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is actually the oldest forensic science program in a university in the world. And so I got the idea from Glenn Langenberg, who was, um, when I was younger in my career, he was doing what I'm doing now, which is working full-time as a forensic scientist while he worked on his PhD uh, at University of Lausanne. And I had taken some courses from Glenn and, you know, knew him a little bit. And so I would talk to him about it and say, you know, Glenn, um, I'd really like to do a PhD in forensic science. Like, how do you make that happen? (laughs) Right. And um, so we started talking about a little bit. He was telling me about his advisor, who is uh, Christophe Champeau, who's pretty well known in the uh, latent print field anyway. And I think pretty well known throughout the pattern evidence field and certainly in Europe. And um, I said, well, you know, um, Professor Champeau, he's known for being a statistician and I'm not. Right. (laughs) Statistics is not something that I have a lot of background in. I said, so I I don't think he would be interested in me as a student. Right. Uh, And Glenn was very encouraging and said sort of, you know, well, he has a lot of interests and as long as they're related to something that he you know, wants to do, I'm sure he would consider you and think about what kind of a project you might like to do. And it turned out that he was going to be attending a conference that I wanted to go to. So I made sure that I got to that conference and introduced myself to him and said, you know, hi, Professor Shampo, I, I would really like to do my PhD in forensic science and I'd be interested in working with you. And he said, you know, if you want to come do studies in our program, you'll have to write me some sort of a proposal for the sort of research you would like to do. And he said, because, you know, we don't want to take just any old Mickey Mouse students. 
never forgotten that phrase. <laughs> Mickey Mouse student. Yes, and I okay. did not want to be seen as a Mickey Mouse student. No, I was so never. upset about yes. that. <laughs> so I actually spent a few years working on that proposal. Um, I met him in 2009, and I enrolled in 2013. Oh, wow. So, so it was a, quite the build. It was a long point. time, and I wrote a couple drafts of it. So at, at that okay. point, I had finally sort of proven to him that I wasn't a Mickey Mouse student. Right. Yes. I'm <laughs> so, taking this very seriously. Right. Yes. <laughs> so then I enrolled in the program in 2013, and that was still while I was working full-time at Las Vegas. Okay. And they supported me as far as they were able. And what right. I mean by that is they allowed me access to some resources at the department, things like fingerprints that I could use in my study, but they did not allow me any time. So if I wanted to work on it, I was working on my own time. I'd come in on my day off to work on it. Um, they were not certainly going to pay my travel. So Las Vegas was giving you some resources, but it yes. wasn't enough. Right. At what point did you move away from Las Vegas? So I had been at Las Vegas for about two years uh, when I was contacted out of the blue by John Morgan actually oh, here, really? at, here yeah. at RTI International and actually at the time John Morgan was not John Morgan of RTI International and what happened was RTI International was putting in a bid for a large cooperative agreement and they were looking to staff that proposal okay you know if we get the bid who will be doing the work right and they were looking for some statisticians which as I have said, I am not. But they had come across, of course, Christophe Champeau's name. So they had contacted him and said, hey, we're working on this proposal. We'd like you to be a part of it. And he said, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly happy to be part of it and, and help support you and, you know, give some, um, some assistance to the project, but I'm not going to move to the U.S. and I'm not going to come to work for you full time or, you know, any of that sort of thing. Uh, he said, but you know who who would really probably fit in well with what you're trying to do is my student, Heidi Eldridge, and she oh, lives in the U.S. Okay, so, so here's the links. Yeah, are... yeah. so Christoph gave them my name, and uh, John Morgan called me and said, you know, this is what we're putting together. Would you like to be part of it? And so I sort of said, so wait, let me get this straight. Like, you would pay me to move to North Carolina and do research all the time and teach at conferences and develop everything that I'm interested in doing. And he sort of said, yeah. Uh, Where's the dotted line? Right, where right. do I sign? Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so now you are you currently reside in North Carolina. Yes. What is your area of focus right now, now that you are actually at a research institute? I recently won a, an NIJ research and development grant, and that is in the area of uh, latent print analysis. And what we're working on is establishing a baseline estimate for the error rate of palm print comparisons within the latent print discipline. Christophe Champeau, my advisor, is actually working with me on that. He's the co-PI on that project, so we're doing that as a team. And we just launched this study at the IEI conference at the end of July, beginning of August. And so far, we've had a really good response. We've had a lot of people signing up to participate. And so we're pretty excited about the data that's rolling in. So currently, right now, you have your black box study, correct? The NIJ grant. But you are also helping the FTCOE with other things, such as uh, vicarious trauma. And there's also human factors things involved with that. Do you mind uh, letting us know what those different projects are? Sure, yeah. So there's um, two projects in this sort of cognitive psychology domain that I'm, I'm working on for the FTCOE. The first one is the, we're calling it the Human Factors in Forensic Science Practice Sourcebook. And so what we did there was we assembled a working group of forensic science practitioners and cognitive psychologists 
and we brought them together for uh, three working group meetings over the course of a couple years. And the idea was that a lot of times when forensic scientists hear human factors, um, they interpret that to mean bias because they've been sort of hit over the head with the bias stick for the last 10, 15 years. And so I think in the forensic science community, there's a sort of negative knee-jerk reaction whenever anyone sees, says human factors. They think, oh, God, they're going to start bludgeoning us with bias again. We know, we know, we're biased. Right. right. Um, yeah. But there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot more going on in human factors, and a lot of it is actually beneficial to the forensic science community. Uh, there's guidance that can be given in things like personnel selection and assessment. You know, How do you hire the right people? How do you make sure that they're progressing well? Um, things about laboratory culture, you know, can we make it so that people aren't, you know, committing suicide because they made one mistake in casework? You know, can we help people have better mental health around the environment that they work in? Um, even things like ergonomics or sleep deprivation, you know, or maybe you're not fit for casework because, you know, you had a bad night or you were getting divorced or your kid's sick or, you know, and these things may affect your outcomes, but we don't really talk about those very much in the forensic science laboratory. So people don't necessarily feel comfortable going to their boss and saying, hey, I'm having a really bad time here. Could you take me off casework for a little while while I get my head back in the game? Right. Right. Yeah. And so there are all these different sorts of human factors areas that really need to be explored, but there's not very much research in those areas that pertains directly to forensic science. We have it in maybe other domains like the medical domain or uh, air pilots, things like that. So we contacted these cognitive psychologists who are really embroiled in these research fields, but maybe don't know much about forensic science because they've been in the sort of other fields. And we brought them together for these working group meetings, and the forensic scientists spent some time educating the psychologists about forensic science and what our challenges and needs are. And then the psychologists spent some time educating the forensic scientists about sort of core psychological research that exists that might have some bearing on the challenges we face. And what's going to come out of that is we're trying to put together a book, a source book, that has uh, a chapter on each of the areas of expertise of our psychologists. And each psychologist was teamed up with a few forensic practitioners to give them sort of perspective and insight and context on right. the forensic science issues. Um, and so we're hoping that it will be sort of a primer for forensic scientists, forensic science managers, for people who say, okay, what is this human factor stuff and what does it have to do with my lab? You know, how could it affect my employees or my colleagues? Right. Um, and teach them that there are, are other resources out there, that it's not all just bias. Um, and then really we wanted to highlight areas where we do need research that can bring these cognitive science topics directly to forensic science, the areas where maybe we can't just extrapolate from what research has already been done, but we're really issuing a call for research okay. that could help the forensic science community. Wow, yeah, it sounds like there's it's going to be a well-rounded workbook. It's going to hit That's a little bit hope. of everything. That's the hope. <laughs> That's the hope. Right, yeah. right. Um, so then the other project um, is the uh, Workplace Stress and Vicarious Trauma and Resiliency Project. And that one we're just getting off the ground right now. It's something new we've started. Um, and where that came from was the observation that we see bad stuff as forensic scientists. Right, um, yeah. And everyone involved with forensic science, you know, if you're looking at sane nurses or medical examiners or attorneys, um, we're all exposed to these sort of horrific scenes of violence. You know, you go and you work a scene and you see a dead child laying there or you're um, processing a rape kit or, you know, we're sort of at the, the fringes of all 
the worst days of people's lives right. or the last yes. days of people's lives. Um, and there hasn't been a lot done in how that affects us. There has been a fair bit of research in how that affects first responders, police officers, uh, fire personnel, EMTs, but they kind of left the forensic community out of that. And there's sort of, I don't know if we weren't thought of or if it was minimized or what, I'm not sure how it happened, but nobody ever really stopped and thought, well, gosh, the lab people are being exposed to all this. The crime scene techs are being exposed to all of this. Uh, what resources are in place to help them? And for the most part, there really aren't any. At the yep. end of the day, you are still a human being seeing yes. terrible things happen to another human being. Exactly. And so that's why they call it vicarious trauma, because I'm not the one who got chopped up, but right. I saw somebody chopped up, and that still traumatized me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, it makes sense. Yeah. Logically. <laughs> right. So we're trying to um, pull in some of the research and resources and, and tools that have already been started in this area for the first responders and say, okay, how could we take that stuff and now apply it to more of the forensic community and the people around the forensic community. So we're going to be pulling together a webinar series, which we're actually launching in September. Okay. The first uh, webinar in that series. And we're hoping to extend it out to uh, four, five, maybe even 10 webinars as we find interested experts who want to come and contribute and really start a conversation about this whole area. And then in the future, we're hoping to expand even further and have some working groups and source books and things like that where we could make some real recommendations and offer some tools and resources to the community of, you know, this is a sort of program that we recommend you have in place to make sure that your employees are getting the support they need. Right. And, and if you are an interested subject matter expert or you are interested in these things, you should visit the ForensicCOE.org website. There is a contact form there that you can directly speak to the FTCOE team. And, you know, you can throw your name in the hat. Um, and the other piece of it, the workplace um, stress, I don't want to overshadow that with the trauma, but also just the, the general workplace stress that forensic scientists go through, this notion of perfection, that we can't afford to make mistakes and that we're always under public scrutiny and that sort of thing. Um, we, we feel that it's likely that that is also contributing to stress for forensic practitioners. So we also want to touch on those issues. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Heidi Eldridge, for being on Just Science today for our uh, National Forensic Science Week special series. Thank you for having me. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.